0: You are now listening to British Murders, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers... I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fifth episode of Season 9. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like both. Did you know that in 2011, a hotel in Japan was recognised by Guinness World Records as the oldest hotel in the world? The Nishiyama Onsen Kaunken, located in Hayakawa, Japan, was founded in 705 AD. 1,318 years ago. And until 2017, it was continuously run by 52 generations of the same family. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day We are all born as empty vessels which can be shaped by moral values. That was said by Jerry Springer, the talk show host who recently died, aged 79. This case was suggested via email by Karen Vermeer, who was kind enough to provide me with five quickfire facts about the area in and around East Grinstead, West Sussex. This story has two main timelines, with the second taking place in Bexleyheath, Heath, South East London, but I'm just going to use Karen's facts this week. Number one, the words to the Christmas carol, Good King Wenkislas? Wenkislas? Christ, I've never heard of that were written by James Mason Neal in East Grinstead at Sackville College. Make a mental note of the name Sackville as it appears again later in the story. Number two, Sir Archibald Mackindo, or Mackindo, was a pioneering plastic surgeon during the Second World War and was based at East Grinstead's Queen Victoria Hospital. McKindo improved the treatment and rehabilitation of badly burned air crew during the war and helped form a social club in 1941 called the Guinea Pig Club, which still exists today. Number three, East Grinstead has gained a reputation in recent decades as a hotbed for offbeat religious activity. Science fiction writer and founder of the Church of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, lived at St. Hill Manor near the town and it served as Scientology's worldwide headquarters until 1967. It is still owned by the church, by the way. Number four, East Grinstead has had some pretty epic former residents, including Wrightshead Fred, <laughs> epic, Jane Leaves of Frasier fame, Sir Patrick Moore, Led Zeppelin and Tom Cruise. And finally, in at number five, the Forest of Forest Row, a village on the outskirts of East Grinstead in which the first timeline of our story this week takes place refers to Ashdown Forest. Writer A. A. Milne lived on the northern edge of the forest at Cotchford Farm, and the fictional hundred acre wood of his Winnie the Pooh stories derives from five hundred acre wood in Ashdown Forest as of the 2021 census, the estimated population of East Grinstead was twenty eight thousand two hundred and ten. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners, as always. listener discretion is advised. In November 2022, London's Violence Reduction Unit published a new groundbreaking framework analysing police data. The aim of the framework was to better understand the drivers of homicide and to identify opportunities to intervene earlier. 50 homicides were selected from confidential murder case files held by the Metropolitan Police and the results were rather unexpected. Of the six factors identified, mental health was the most common. What I mean by that is that in 29 of the 50 homicide cases studied, mental ill health was a factor for either the victim or the killer. Therefore, more than twice as many homicides occur because of mental health problems than of, say, gang involvement, which was only a factor in 14 of the 50 cases studied. On British murders, I've covered four cases since season 7 begun where either the killer or victim suffered from mental health problems. Lee Anstis was in and out of psychiatric care in the months leading up to murdering his wife Tracy. Becky Watts had a history of mental health issues before her stepbrother Nathan Matthews murdered her. Odessa Carey Jr. had several mental health problems and went on to murder her mum Odessa Sr. And more recently I covered the case of Rocky Price who has autism and ADHD and was convicted of murdering Lindsay Burbeck. All of those episodes are in my back catalogue if you've not listened to them already, but I'm not mentioning them to just plug my content. This week's case also deals with severe mental health problems and resulted in the Independent Police Complaints Commission getting involved at one point, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Our story has two main timelines, as I mentioned earlier, so we may as well begin on September 9th, 1980. That was the day our villain, Nicola Caroline Edgington, was born. She was the first child to her parents and would go on to be the eldest of three children to them. Nicola's younger brother Thomas came along two years after she was born, with Sarah, the youngest of the three, arriving three years after Thomas. Marion was the children's mum and she was married to their father, whose name I couldn't find, when they were born. By the time Sarah arrived, Nicola was five years old, and not long after, Marion and her husband divorced. I struggled to find much background information regarding Nicola's time spent at junior school, but her time spent at Sackville Community College, now known as Sackville School, was when things began to take a turn for the worse. A frequent truant, Nicola missed a fair chunk of her secondary education and appears to have taken her frustration with the school system out on her fellow pupils. A known bully, Nicola had a short fuse and was prone to violent outbursts. She reportedly spent some time throughout her teenage years in social care. No further details are available, but it may have been because of incidents such as the ones I'm about to tell you. Firstly, and I must state clearly this is according to Nicola only, she was sexually active from the age of 13 and was also a frequent drug user. Secondly, when she was 15, Nicola attacked her mum with a landline telephone before running away from home. The police soon caught up with her and she was subsequently cautioned for actual bodily harm. Things were clearly not working out living at home with her mum and siblings. Nicola was a regular customer at local bars and pubs in the Forest Row area whose reputation was growing by the day and not in a good way. Eventually she made the decision to move away from home for good, settling in London. Her drug use only became more prevalent now she was living unsupervised and inevitably she ended up overdosing on two separate occasions. Nicola once turned up at A&E complaining of hearing voices in her head that were making her both suicidal and murderous, with her intended victim being a mum. She was only 17 at that point. As a result, Nicola attended appointments with a consultant psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist in an attempt to assess her mental health. The outcome of those appointments is not known but it doesn't appear as though any steps were taken to help Nicola. She certainly wasn't treated as a risk to herself or others and she wasn't detained at that point. For work Nicola tried her hand at a variety of jobs. She works in retail first as a shop assistant and then as a salesperson before also giving hairdressing a go but nothing stuck. She brought two sons into the world at some point in her young adult life and was said to have had a couple of toxic relationships which ended sourly. She was married at one point, presumably to one of her son's fathers, and possibly remains married. One source said that one of the fathers was deported while the other insisted that their child lived with him in Jamaica, but as with a lot of online articles, it's never clear as to which aspects of each report are 100% accurate. Therefore, I recommend you take what I've told you about Summer of Nicola's background with a pinch of salt. One thing's for sure, though, domestic violence and heavy drug use were prevalent in each of Nicola's relationships. With her mental health deteriorating at a rapid rate, Nicola's murderous tendencies continued to grow. Her logic was that everyone else wanted to kill her, so she felt it wise to perhaps gain an advantage by killing them first. She was hallucinating by then and not only claimed to see people that weren't there, but she also reportedly believed that she was Jesus Christ. Again, that may just be sensationalised reporting, but if it's true, it shows just how mentally unwell Nicola was. A consequence of her declining mental health was having her remaining son taken away by social services in October 2005 on the back of recommendations by her family. Nicola was not in a fit enough state to properly care for her child, they thought, and her frequent brushes with the law for criminal damage and threatening behaviour towards a neighbour didn't help her cause. Bizarrely, Nicola is said to have been examined by a clinical psychiatrist who confirmed that there was no evidence of her suffering from any mental illness. Only a month later, tragedy struck. Imagine you're visiting your mum and staying over at her house for the weekend with your sibling. You go for a night out together and have a great time, only deciding to call it a night in the early hours of the following morning. As you arrive back at the house, you perhaps wonder what food you can whip up to soak up some of the alcohol you've consumed. But as you open the front door and make your way inside, you're greeted by a sight that will no doubt traumatise you for the rest of your life. You find the body of your 60-year-old mum on the floor, covered in blood, and there's a kitchen knife on her chest. That's exactly what happened on the morning of Saturday, November 5th, 2005 to siblings Tom and Sarah, the two youngest children of Marion Edgington. If we rewind to the previous evening, Nicola had joined her siblings by also visiting her mum's house that weekend. It was supposed to be a nice family getaway weekend for Marion's adult children, but it was anything but. From what I could make out, Nicola had been with her siblings on the night out but was said to have been behaving rather oddly. Leaving Sarah and Tom to it, Nicola made her way back to the house. She had a bone to pick with her mum and wanted to raise the issue sooner rather than later. What precisely happened that night, argument-wise, is known only to Nicola, but some of Marion's neighbours recalled hearing the mother and daughter going at it hammer and tongs. One source said Nicola was unhappy that Marion had taken her out of her will, Whereas another suspected the argument was caused by Nicola suspecting it was Marion that had reported her son to social services and was therefore the person responsible for Nicola's son being taken away from her. In her rage, Nicola grabbed a nearby kitchen knife and used it to stab her mum a total of nine times. She then left the house and got in a taxi before stopping off at a nearby cafe. The emergency services were called by Tom, but sadly, Marion could not be saved. Nicola was on the run for two weeks before finally getting arrested after being spotted riding a bus. That was in spite of her sister's appeals on TV for her to turn herself in. Sarah said in her appeal, Mum was perfect in every way. She loved helping people. She was a wonderful woman and she would have done anything to help anyone else who needed it. The rest of the family are finding it very difficult to understand what has happened. Nicola, please, hand yourself in to police. We can't come to terms with what has happened until we know where you are. At the police station, Nicola was deemed to be actively psychotic by the officers. Despite that, Nicola was initially detained in a remand prison for a few months until the decision was made to move her to the Bracton Centre, a medium security mental health unit. Nicola moved to the Bracton Centre in February 2006 and remained there until her scheduled court date in August. At first, she was deemed unfit to stand trial, but that decision was later reversed. Two months after her scheduled court date, Nicola pleaded guilty in court to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. You may be wondering why she was not found guilty of murder. The reason was due to a psychiatrist submitting a report which explained that Nicola had suffered an acute psychotic episode which began before killing her mum and continued afterwards. Couple that with her now-diagnosed emotionally unstable personality traits, and there's your explanation. The recommendation from said psychiatrist was for Nicola to spend a good period of time in a secure psychiatric hospital unit so that her condition could be closely monitored. Long term, the plan was rehabilitation, but for now, Nicola was to be detained under Section 37-41 of the Mental Health Act 1983. For the next three years, Nicola was an inpatient at the Bracton Centre where she received regular doses of antipsychotic and mood stabilising medication in an attempt to treat a condition. As she had in high school, Nicola caused havoc for the hospital staff by being abusive towards them, but it didn't stop her from transferring to an area within the Bracton Centre aimed at helping patients who showed signs of being able to live independently. That move came in November 2007, and it's where Nicola remained until she was conditionally discharged from the Bracton Centre on September 29, 2009. Despite continuing concerns about her behaviour, especially when it came to interacting with other patients and reductions in her medication, the appropriate discharge meetings were said to have taken place, meaning Nicola's release was supposedly well above board. Back in the community, Nicola lived in a self-contained flat in Greenwich, a town in south-east London. Her release came with certain conditions that she must adhere to to prevent being recalled to the centre. The conditions, which the Ministry of Justice helped draw up, included the following. Supervision, residence, drug and alcohol testing, medication, patient appointments, and exclusion from the areas where she killed her mum and where her brother and sister lived. The next two years saw Nicola being monitored by a psychiatrist, nurse and social worker, but it didn't stop her mental health from further deteriorating. She had also attempted to reconnect with her dad, who lived on the continent in France, and her siblings, explicitly going against her release conditions. During that period, Nicola was allowed to visit her son and husband in Jamaica a couple of times, but when she did, her husband reported that she became very aggressive and violent towards him. Nicola denied those claims. And now, back to the story. By March 2011, Nicola visited her GP and was quickly informed that she may be pregnant. She was immediately advised to stop taking her mood stabilising medication by a psychiatrist upon hearing that news. A few months later, Nicola claimed that she'd had a miscarriage and was receiving abusive text messages from one of her ex-boyfriends whom she'd met at a local gym. In the fall of that year, Nicola's prescribed medication included 900 milligrams of the antipsychotic drug quetiapine per day, as well as the mood stabiliser drug sodium valproate. The last time she met with her medical supervisor was on September 22nd, and no concerns were raised regarding her mental health or behaviour. Nicola explained that her psychotic symptoms seemed to be dampening, but just a week later, that would all change. It was reaching out to her brother on Facebook that is said to have been the turning point for Nicola that year as the encounter went far worse than she'd expected. Her message to Tom read I am missing mum bad. I have just had a miscarriage and to be honest, no one is taking care of me like she did. Love you. Kiss, kiss, kiss. An understandably fuming Tom replied You stabbed her to death and left me to find her body. Good news about your miscarriage though. People like you should be sterilised for the good of the world. Do us all a favour and just cut your wrists. October 6, 2011 is where our second main timeline begins. Between 11.21 and 11.42pm, Nicola Edgington dialed 999 on three separate occasions. In the first call, she asked for the police to visit her property because she claimed to be receiving death threats from some people that she knew. The abusers were currently in a local takeaway just down the road and had sent over 30 threatening text messages to her. An issue with the call quality meant that the operator was unable to hear Nicola when she provided her address, which led to her becoming frustrated. The operator unsuccessfully tried to call Nicola back, but two minutes later, she made her second call of the evening. Nicola reiterated what she'd told the previous operator and went one step further by providing the names of the two men that had been harassing her. Some advice was then provided to the effect that Nicola remained indoors and was relatively safe as the offenders were outside the house. Should that situation change, Nicola was advised to phone back, which she soon did. The third call saw Nicola cancel her request for police officers to visit her home. She missed work the next day and used her afternoon to report the two men in person to officers at Greenwich Police Station. The report was subsequently forwarded to the multi-agency risk assessment conference team, who then sent a domestic violence pack to Nicola's home. Two days after her police station visit, Nicola was back on the phone with 999 operators. Four calls were made between 9.43 and 9.54pm, with the gist of Nicola's complaint being that she claimed to have let some crackheads into her flat who had then nicked her keys. By the fourth call, Nicola told the operator that she'd found her keys and no longer required police assistance. In the early hours of Monday, October 10th, Nicola was back in touch with the emergency services, but this time she wasn't requesting police officers or reporting a crime. At around three in the morning, Nicola arrived at Lewisham Hospital. She'd gotten there by way of a taxi driven by a controller at a minicab firm. Once at Lewisham Hospital, Nicola bluntly told the driver that the hospital appeared to be closed and asked him to drive away. Despite finding out the hospital was, in fact, open, the frustrated taxi driver drove Nicola back to the cab office where an argument broke out after she explained she had no money to pay the fare. Clearly distressed, the taxi driver was sufficiently concerned enough to phone the emergency services, especially after Nicola told him she wanted to be sectioned. That call was made by the taxi driver at 4.01am with PC Daniel Phillips and PC Matthew Payne arriving at the scene 14 minutes later. A short conversation with Nicola ensued before the three of them left the cab office and headed for Queen Elizabeth Hospital, also in Lewisham. Nicola didn't say much on the way, according to the two officers, although she did at one point admit to having been abused by her father as a child. Staff at the hospital's A&E department greeted the officers and took down Nicola's information. The waiting area was busy, which meant that it was going to take a while for Nicola to be seen by the triage nurse. So while she waited, she attempted to get in touch with her community psychiatric nurse and social worker. The psychiatric nurse was off work sick, so she couldn't get through to her, but Nicola's social worker messaged her back almost immediately by confirming a meeting with her later in that day. Nicola tried to leave the hospital, but was ushered back inside by the two officers. CCTV footage captured Nicola's erratic behaviour whilst in the waiting area, which mainly consisted of her constantly fidgeting and moving around a lot. A&E receptionist Sylvia Rogers recalled Nicola approaching the desk at one point and saying, How long am I going to be here? Is it going to take for me to kill someone, as I've done it before, so I can get seen? She also reportedly told nurses that she was hearing voices and wanted to be sent to a secure hospital. Five calls were made to 999 between 4.52 and 5.27 a.m. In one call, Nicola told the operator the following, I need for the police to come because I've had a nervous breakdown before and I killed someone. The last time I was like this, I killed someone. Could you please send a car now, please? In another, she said, You need to come to Queen Elizabeth Hospital and take me into custody because I'm feeling very scared and paranoid and my psychiatrist told me when I'm feeling like this, I can be extremely dangerous. I don't want to start hurting anyone. I want to hand myself in now before I start hurting anyone. Please. In the final call, she said, Can you send the police? I'm a very dangerous schizophrenic and if you don't come and help me, I'm going to end up hurting someone. I'm getting more and more dangerous. The more scared I get, the more dangerous I'm getting. When asked where she was at one point, Nicola reportedly replied, I'm at the gates of heaven. By half five that morning, Nicola was finally seen by Hakim Bowenpong, the Oxley's NHS Foundation Trust Liaison Psychiatric Mental Health Nurse. Nicola told Hakim that she had not slept for almost a month and wanted to be sectioned, to which Hakim replied by stating that she did not need to be sectioned as she had turned up at the hospital voluntarily. An hour after meeting Hakeem, Nicola was taken by A and E staff to the Oxleyas Mental Health Team, who were based a short ten or so minute walk away. Here's where one mistake led to catastrophically tragic consequences. At around 7 a.m., the Oxleyas Mental Health Team shift was changing, which meant that the doors' main building was left open. One of the doors was also faulty, so Nicola simply walked out and made her way to a nearby bus stop, where at 7:24 a.m she boarded the B-16 bus to Bexley Heath. The police were soon informed that Nicola had absconded, and by 8am they'd arrived at her flat, but she wasn't there. Having made her way to Bexley Heath, Nicola entered an Asda supermarket and headed straight to the home section. She grabbed a knife, paid for it at the till, and left the store. By half 8 that fateful morning, Nicola had selected someone to attack with her new knife. 22-year-old artist Kerry Clark was minding her own business at a bus stop when Nicola approached her out of the blue and lunged at her with a knife. Kerry managed to prevent Nicola from using the blade by grabbing it with her hands and taking it from her. Kerry said of the incident, I fell to the floor and she was on top of me. I had to fight her off. We were grappling. I managed to grab the blade with one hand and kick her off me. It happened very quickly. A failed attempt to retrieve the knife left a frustrated Nicola with no option but to walk away from the scene, which witnesses say she did in an extremely calm manner, considering what had just happened. Within a few minutes of attacking Kerry, Nicola had made her way inside a butcher's shop and stolen a 12-inch steak knife from behind the counter. The theft was reported to the police by one of the shop's employees as well as a member of the public. They said the woman was now in the car park of a nearby bowling alley, screaming her lungs out. A third call was then made to the police by another member of the public who informed the operator that he was following Nicola's movements from a safe distance. At the same time, a 58-year-old accounts manager called Sally Hodkin was walking along Albion Road, the road on which the bowling alley is located. Having left the bowling alley's car park, Nicola attacked and killed Sally with the butcher's knife as she made her way to work. Nicola then ran down Albion Road before abruptly stopping at a tile shop and heading inside where she reportedly told staff members that she thought she may have just killed someone. Mere minutes after Nicola murdered Sally, police officers arrived and entered the shop, arresting Nicola in a moment caught on CCTV cameras from over the road. When questioned by the officers, Nicola explained that her actions were the fault of the staff at the hospital. She said, They just kept tapping on keyboards. I told them I was going to hurt someone. It's all their fault. She was detained at a women's secure unit in Ealing Hospital until her trial began in early 2013. The four-and-a-half-week trial took place at the Old Bailey with Judge Brian Barker overseeing proceedings. Despite denying murder and attempted murder, she likely wanted another manslaughter conviction like she'd received when killing a mum, Nicola Edgington was found guilty of both in February of that year. Judge Brian Barker handed her a life sentence with a minimum term of 37 years for the murder of Sally Hodkin, with a concurrent life sentence with a 20-year minimum for the attempted murder of Kerry Clark. Judge Brian Barker said in his closing statement, You are manipulative and exceptionally dangerous. What you did could not have been more selfish. I disagree that the responsibility for these acts can be laid on others. You made your choice, and these were terrible acts for which you must take responsibility. You have come as near as can be to having three deaths on your hands. In a statement issued after the verdict, Sally Hodkins' family said, There is not a day that goes by when we do not think about her. She is sorely missed by all that knew her. We cannot quite understand how or why Nicola Edgington was released back into society so soon after killing her own mother. Her release in 2009 didn't involve any independent psychiatrists or mental health tribunals. The Ministry of Justice simply followed recommendations from the Brackton Centre where she was being held. This cannot have been the right decision. Otherwise, we would not be here today. It is our opinion that this woman should never be released back into society. The public need to be protected from people like her. After sentencing, Oxley House NHS Foundation Trust carried out a thorough internal investigation and concluded that the decision to release Nicola back into the community was a sound and justified one. They also noted that Nicola received sufficient and good quality care once released. Sally Hodkins' son Len, a solicitor, described his mum as a loving, caring wife, fantastic mother and grandmother, and terrific friend. Every year, Len holds a memorial football match at Welling United Football Club in memory of his mum. In an article written in 2016, Len explained that they had raised over £35,000 in total so far, which had all been sent to charitable causes. Lenny is also the chairperson of 100 Families, a UK charity that aims to offer accurate information and practical advice for families bereaved by people with mental health problems. 100 Families also offers evidence-based resources for mental health professionals and others interested in serious violence by the mentally ill. I've linked the charity in my show notes should you wish to find out more or make a donation. An investigation into the police's contact with Nicola Edgington before she murdered Sally Hodkin was published in a 2012 report by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. Its summarised findings were as follows. 1. No officer or member of police staff was said to have breached the police or police staff code of conduct, although they were critical that at no stage did PC Phillips and PC Payne conduct checks on Nicola. 2. Once Nicola was at the hospital and had demonstrated her intention to leave, the officers could have used their powers given under Section 136 of the Mental Health Act. However, it was also open to medical staff to take appropriate action had they considered it necessary. 3. As she had agreed to an admission, Nicola was therefore an informal patient who was free to leave Oxley's house before being admitted to a ward, even though the assessing nurse was aware of her mental health background. And four, whilst in a and Nicola was seen and assessed by a psychiatric nurse and a bed was being prepared for her. It was whilst all that was going on that she decided to leave Oxley's house and commit her crimes. Len Hodkins said of the report, The IPCC report says that despite her mental state, she was left unsupervised, but the independent report from the NHS says police officers were to blame. So we have two public bodies criticising each other and apportioning blame to each other. We need to get to the bottom of this. There was a report published in 2016 by Associate Caring Solutions UK Ltd. It's called External Investigation into the Case of Ms A, and it's linked in my show notes should you care to read it. You can also find the IPCC's report easily online. I highly recommend you give both of them a read if you do want to learn more about this case. Nicola Edgington, who was 32 when she was handed a jail sentence, will be eligible for parole on February 25th, 2050, at which point she'll be 69. And that was the story of British murderer Nicola Edgington. Thanks again Karen Vermeer for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. If you're listening on Spotify, by the way, there's a section at the bottom of this episode where you can let me know what you thought about the case, just reply to the question. I've got another 11 reviews to read out this week. Thanks so much for your continued support. I'm really feeling the love. Meanie Feeny left a five-star review on Apple Podcast titled Still Here, Still Loving. It reads, After a year of listening to this podcast, I can honestly say I've loved every episode. Each episode is researched well and detailed. Love the little icebreakers too. Thanks for being so consistent, Stuart. Wongo79 left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Thank You. It reads, I wish I'd found you in September when I went off work due to illness. I'm finally going back in a month. Hopefully that's enough time to binge listen. I'm randomly going through them. I love the two partners. I'm on Levi, and you said you have done Turbin. That's the next one. Keep up the good work. Brian Yates left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Gordon Park. It reads: Fantastic podcast, really well read, and so easy to follow. Susan Ristow left a 5-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Awesome Podcast. It reads, Really well done. Author has a soothing voice despite the true horrors he describes. I highly recommend it. Lucianne left a 5-star review on BritishMurders.com titled British Murders, a true crime gem of a podcast. It reads, Wow, what an amazing and informative podcast that delves into diverse and complex murders in a colourful yet unbiased manner. You can listen to the show whilst cooking, cleaning, or even before bed, as Stuart's voice is so soothing you'll not have any nightmares. It's currently keeping me very sane as I write my dissertation, and I've recommended it to all my peers. May I suggest the cases of Tia Sharp and Shakilis Townsend? Both stories rocked my local communities for different reasons, and I'd love for their stories to be shared. Keep up all the good work, and when I can afford more than beans on toast, I'll be sure to buy you a coffee. I've added both of those case suggestions to my spreadsheet for you, Lucian. JD left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great We Podcast. It reads, Stuart's podcast is so easy to listen to, he goes into great detail while not being too wordy. The length of each episode isn't too long either, and it keeps me occupied while I study. Could you please cover the murder of Sherry Brooks from Aberdeen? I've also added that to my spreadsheet, JD, thank you. Chris Armit left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled My Favourite Podcast. It reads, a bit late getting round to leaving this review as I've been listening to the podcast now for nigh on six months. However, as I said in the title, this is my favourite podcast. Engaging with great content, clearly well-researched and Stuart is the perfect host. Telling the facts of the case with clear compassion for the victims and in no way sensationalising the crime. Also enjoy the true facts that sound like bullshit and random quote of the day as well as the old daddy facts segments. You will not regret getting hooked on this podcast. Keep up the good work, Stuart. Fair Futura left a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts titled One of My Faves. It reads... Been listening for a few months now. Love that it's got lots of information, but doesn't feel like you're being bombarded with it. Love the little bit of dark humour Stuart sneaks in. Even though there is a bit of dark humour, the rest of the podcast is handled with dignity. Moonlight Magic left a five-star review on Apple Podcast titled Great. It reads, Only recently stumbled across this podcast, and I love it. It's great and short, but full of facts and details. I love how Stuart explains things clearly and simply, but without mansplaining everything. I'll be binge listening to all episodes. Shaggy Man left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, titled Brilliant. It reads, Love listening to this when I'm driving at work. Keep up the good work. And finally, Obfus44 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, titled Love This Podcast. It simply reads, An enjoyable listen. Thank you, Meanie Feeny, Wongo79, Brian, Susan, Lucy Ann, JD, Chris, Fae Futura, Moonlight Magic, Shaggy Man, and Obfus44 for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me a Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you once again, Karen Vermeer, for buying me three beers at BuyMeACoffee.com/BritishMurders. The note left reads. I still absolutely love your excellent podcast. Here's a few beers to say thank you for all your hard work and for covering my case suggestion. As I said before, keep doing what you love, as we love it too. Continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. When I cover the case, just like Karen did, you will get a cheeky shout-out for your trouble. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio!